0: You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Uh, we'll actually be reading Psalm chapter 2, so if you want to go ahead and find Psalm chapter 2, we'll be reading that in just a little bit. Uh, these, these are prayer songs for the church. To live with the hope of salvation in a sin-broken world—that is basically the subtitle to this sermon series. Um, really, the, this collection of songs and poems that we call the Psalms is truly one of the greatest gifts given to the people of God. All of God's word is wonderful and it's profitable, and it it, it teaches and it corrects. All that I'm not saying this is more that I'm just saying this is a wonderful expression of how God cares for His people in that He gave us these psalms. The psalms give us words to say and words to sing and words to pray. When you ever feel like you just can't come up with words, you turn to the psalms. And so many times that just fills our hearts to be able to pray that. The psalms are unapologetically raw at times and honest. And it, and it gives us the permission to, to sometimes ask of God and from God and to God difficult things that maybe we're like, oh, should I really be asking that of God? And the Psalms just tell us, yeah, we need to ask that for God. And we need to stay before God as he addresses that issue for us. There are other times that the Psalms are just brilliantly insightful, and, and still other times where they are this soothing balm, and that bring this reassuring comfort into our lives. In the Psalms, we find words, and we find phrases, and we find expressions that give a voice to our honest heart cries. They give a voice to our questions, to our uncertainties, and even to our struggles of faith to trust in God. Dr. George Horn, who lived back in the 1700s, he said this in his commentary on Psalms. Psalms are composed upon particular occasions, yet designed for general use. They're delivered out of services for the Israelites under the law yet no less adapt it to the circumstances of Christians under the gospel. It's a powerful gift. And Augustine wrote this, and this encouragement about the Psalms. Form thy spirit by the affections of the psalm. If the psalm breathes the spirit of prayer, do you pray? If it is filled with groanings, groan also thyself. If it is gladsome, do thou rejoice also. If it encourages hope, then hope thou in God. If it calls to godly fear, then tremble thou before the divine majesty. For all things herein contained are mirrors to reflect on our own real character. Let the heart do what the words signify. It's wonderfully said. And for centuries, actually millennia, God's people have turned over and over again to the Psalms to direct their songs, to direct their prayers, and to direct their hearts. Last week, Pastor Philip stirred our souls and challenged our hearts from Psalm 1. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Psalm chapter 2. Hopefully you found that. Follow along as I read aloud. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you Perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to a chapter, to a text, to words that reflect something going on almost 3,000 years ago, but yet it certainly points us forward in so many ways. We need your help this morning to understand. We want you to address our hearts, the condition of our hearts, where, where we may be off in our thinking, where our, our, what we believe may not be fully in line with your word. Lord, we pray you would correct that. And Lord, we pray that you would just exalt Christ in our eyes through this psalm. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. This psalm was most likely authored by King David. It was most likely written over a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And this psalm lays out the defiance and hatred of humanity toward God and toward God's people and towards those who rule or govern God's people. It's a little unsettling to read this in one sense. And while this this psalm is certainly talking about the nations and the pagan rulers that surrounded ancient Israel some 3,000 years ago, and about this hostility towards God's people as well as towards King David, as is the case for all Scripture, this psalm finds its deepest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The hatred, the hostility, and rejection that people and nations have towards Jesus is ultimately reflected here. And we're going to see how that's that's also demonstrated to us in the the New Testament. People's hostility and rejection of Christ, of His glory, of His rule, and of His kingdom. And how they also oftentimes that moves to rejecting and hating uh, God's people, those who follow Jesus Christ. But really, even though we're we're looking at what's going on here, this psalm actually is a tremendous source of comfort for us. See, it helps us to make sense of our world. It helps us to understand what's happening around us, so that we're not surprised, we're not taken aback. The Lord is telling us what's happening around us. It helps us to see wickedness for what it is and why it is so bad. Psalm 2 assures that God is capable to deal with wickedness. And this psalm also points us unwaveringly to Christ Jesus, to our Messiah, to our Redeemer, to our Lord, to our Savior. See, this psalm takes the jungled mess that is our world with all of its antagonism toward God and it tells us what's true about this world and what's true about life. So it becomes this anchoring for us. This psalm is unflinching in its portrayal of wickedness but also unwavering in the hope that is found in Christ. And in this psalm, we we can experience, and hopefully will experience, rest, as well as confidence, both for the church and in the church, and for us as individual followers of Christ. And there are four specific ways this psalm helps us make sense of the world in which we live. Four specific ways. Psalm 2, first, defines the nature of wickedness. Secondly, Psalm 2 shows us the Lord's response to wickedness. Psalm 3 I mean, point three, Psalms 2 gives us hope in Christ. And then finally, Psalms 2 exhorts all people to run to Christ. So let's look at this. Psalm 2, number one, Psalm 2 defines the nature of wickedness. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist is a little confused at the beginning of this, this psalm. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord? Why do the rulers band together against the Lord's anointed? Why are nations and people casting off the bonds and cords of the Lord? The psalmist is basically saying this makes no sense. It makes no sense to him that people should react to the Lord God with such hostility. Now this isn't an arrogant why. like. Why are these people doing it? This is is more of a broken, concerned why? Why are they doing this? Don't they know the Lord? Don't they understand what they are doing to themselves by their defiance of the Lord? Don't they realize what's going to come against them and fall upon them in their mocking defiance of the Lord? Don't they understand how good and kind and generous and wonderful the Lord is? Why are the nations raging? They ought to be worshiping. See, Psalms 2 captures for us the very heart of wickedness. The wickedness described here is in defying God. Wickedness is rejecting that He is the Lord God and there is no other. Wickedness that is described here ultimately is trying to de-God God. God. It's trying to remove God and displace God for who He really is. And this isn't a secondary concern for the people, this, this wickedness. This is... This, this is, they move with intention. They're driven by enmity in their defiance of God. They reject God. They reject God's people. They reject those who lead God's people. And this defiance of God rises in zealous hostility. The nations are raging against God, the people are in defiance of the Lord God. They are devising ways to cancel God. While we are grateful that there still exists religious freedom in our world, at least in some places, there remains aggressive animosity towards Christ and Christians. And this psalm is just pointing us forward. We're going to see that in just a minute. I was reading this week in Christianity Today. And according to Christianity Today, more than 5,600 Christians were killed last year for for their faith in Jesus. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes last year. Chinese officials have closed over 7,000 churches in China in the last two years. Overall, 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. Think about that. That means one out of every seven Christians lives in nations where their rulers are raging against the Lord. And their government is setting up laws to rage against the Lord. And even where religious freedom exists, It is increasingly more tolerated than it is celebrated. That it's not recognized as something that's vital to human thriving. Religion is seen as an impediment to human thriving increasingly. And the psalmist is incredulous. Why would this happen? What's going on here? How can people not see the truth? Why would people so defy the Lord over and over again? History shows us that people want to throw off the restraint and the rule of the Lord God. Why? It's because people want to be their own God. We want to do what pleases us instead of what pleases the Lord God. And yet there is within all of us, we can't escape that we are made in God's image. that means something that's undeniable and that's pressing in all of us. the image of God isn't it has been broken by sin, but it's still there. And in all of us, being made in God's image means we were made. By God, we were made like God, we were made for God to reflect God. That's still operational. That's part of the hardwiring. Although it's broken, it doesn't always click and work, that's still part of the hardwiring of every person. And again, sometimes that hardwiring it has been short-circuited by our sin, but it continues to imprint on the souls of people. And what is happening here is we don't like someone, we don't like anyone, even God telling us no to what we want and what we like and how we want to live. And it's just that simple. And listen, that is the essence of wickedness, of evil, and of sin. So, what wells up inside people? I want what I want. And no one can tell me otherwise. I mean, don't we see that? Don't don't you see that so much? I see that so often in people who say they believe in Jesus, but that only lasts until they begin to understand the claims that Jesus makes on their lives. Claims to that we are to deny ourselves. Claims that we are to take up a cross. Claims that we are to forsake all and follow Him. As long as Jesus is in support of what they want and how they want to live, they're okay with Jesus. They are not good with submitting their lives to the will and the way of God. But that's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple. And this is what the world, and this is what the psalmist was seeing. They're throwing off the cords. They're throwing off any kind of alliance or allegiance to God because they don't want to do what He wants to do. They want what they want. What is happening in that, and it's not so subtle either what is actually happening in those moments in wickedness, no longer are humans made in God's image. Now we're making God in our image. We're changing God to fit us. And what we like and what we want. And we want Him to serve that purpose. This is wickedness. It's not a slight thing. And the nations were roaring about it. The people were, were, the rulers were were banding together. They were coming together. We need to throw this off and we need to to stand against His people where the Lord was manifesting Himself. And, And we see this, we continue to see this as it works out through history. People are offended and angry that anyone would make a claim that binds them to anything but their own heart and desires. It is the world we continue to live in. It is the temptations we all face too, lest we become too arrogant ourselves. Church family, when we look out to the world that is around us, we need to be clear in our thinking. That that yes, we often see the wicked. We see the ungodly. It is defiance of the one true God. But let's keep our hearts from pride. Let's keep our hearts from arrogance. Because those are expressions of self-righteousness. Let us not haughtily judge the world for its wickedness. But rather understand that we would be wicked too, but for the grace of God. Let us respond differently to it. And so often, Christians are like, coming down so hard... Self-righteousness, listen, is no righteousness at all. Yet, this delusion we have when we stand in judgment over others, it so easily lays hold of our hearts and influences our attitudes. We know our righteousness is not our own. That's why the concept of imputed righteousness is so important in our doctrine. There is no righteousness in anything we do. There's only righteousness in what Christ did. And that is what's given to us. That is essential for Christian living. That keeps us from being arrogant, prideful, and self-righteous. We didn't figure out Christ. We didn't open our eyes to believe. Jesus did that. We know our righteousness is not our own. You know, Paul reminds us of this. that, But by the grace of God, we would still be under the judgment of wickedness. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we would still be in that. But by the grace of God. But by what he goes on to say in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let that stamp your souls. By grace you have been saved. When we look out on our world that is in a rage against our God. When we encounter people who are in a rage against God. When we hear of nations and governments establishing laws and policies that are in essence a rage against God. May that just give us greater confidence in God. Because God told us about this 3,000 years ago said, this is going to happen. And then we find it repeated again and again in the New Testament. Don't be surprised by fiery trials. You will suffer. All those who are in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But may we also just respond to people as Christ instructs us. To those who rage against God, we don't want to rage against them. And that seems to be the default setting so often for, for Christians. They treat us poorly. They misquote us. They misrepresent us. So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to return kind for kind. But Jesus told us to do something else. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then you skip down a few more verses. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Really, the intention here is to, to make sure we're maintaining what is our heart towards the world. It, it's always a little shocking to me that Christians are surprised when the world sins and does what is evil. When we ought to be surprised when it doesn't sin more and do more evil. The world sins; it does what it does by nature. It doesn't have a lot of options. There is common grace, and we—that's a whole other thing. But, but, but. The world sins. It is in hostility towards God. Yes, there may be some areas of common grace where they do reflect some of who God is and what God is about. But as nations go, they're still under the darkness. To a world that is raging against God and to a people that are raging against God, our response is to love generously, to be kind everywhere to everyone, and to, in that posture, we speak of Christ and the Gospel with boldness and confidence. We're not bowing, bowing down. We're not backing off. We're not sticking our heads in the sand. No, but we're not also responding aggressively. with enmity, with opposition, with hostility. We're responding with the love that we have received in Christ. We we need to move on quickly here. 2. Psalms 2. Psalm 2 shows us the Lord's response to wickedness. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord sits in the heavens. Sitting is an indication of power and control. When you sit down, it's because you're in control. The Lord hasn't been upset by the hostility and rage of the people, or by their desire to throw off His sovereign rule. He's not intimidated or threatened by their efforts to cancel Him or de-God Him. That's not what we see pictured here. He sits in the heavens. God hasn't been blindsided by sin and the defiance of people. He is sitting. There's this calm, there is this confident image that we see here. Our God is not pacing the throne room. He's not wringing his hands in worry about what people are doing. Actually, he laughs. Cuz it's silly. On one sense, He holds them in derision. He considers their actions to be a joke, in a sense. If they think they can derail his sovereign rule or change his providential care, if they think their rage is going to somehow change him or stop him, he laughs. It's not going to happen. They are fools playing a foolish game where they will lose. And on that day, listen, when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead, they will know the the God's wrath and they will be terrified by His fury over their wickedness. And they will know that they cannot escape the truth. That they are fully responsible and liable for their wickedness. They can't deflect that. They can't play the victim. They entered into this. Wickedness and evil and sin cannot and do not derail the sovereign will of God. That's why he laughs. Wicked people and wicked nations and wicked rulers may think they have effectively thrown off God, but God laughs. God takes even their bad intentions, even the things, that the bad actions that they take, the bad laws that they create, he takes all of them and he works them for the good of his people. He uses even the evil and wickedness of people for His good, for His purpose, for His kingdom. God responds to wickedness. He addresses it. No sin, no one act of evil, no expression of wickedness, no matter how small or how big, will be left unaddressed. Not even one sin has fallen through the cracks or somehow escaped the notice of God. No evil has been left off of God's records that, and they all need justice. They all need to be addressed. And he's just saying, the world may think they're getting away with something. The world may be raging, but the Lord sits and He holds them in derision. It's not going to change ultimately anything. And it is then that the psalm turns from the grievous actions of defiance from the people. And then the Lord's response begins to point the reader to hope. Hope that is found ultimately only in Jesus Christ. Number three, Psalm 2 gives us hope in Christ. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. So the psalm here is most likely David is the one talking. But it is most assuredly speaking of Jesus Christ. You are my son. We find that repeated in the New Testament. That's how the father addresses the son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is all pointing forward. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He says, Today I have begotten you. It's interesting. This, this psalm was quoted by the early church in Acts chapter 4. The church was beginning to, ex- to experience persecution. They were beginning to experience opposition. The church gathered together, and this is part of how they this was part of their prayer. Why did the na- Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This is Acts 4, verse 25. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The church understand, understood that what the Psalm 2 was talking about was ultimately about Jesus Christ. And they were experiencing that because they were following Jesus. They understood that the raging and the plotting was against Jesus. The opposition the early church faced was connected to this psalm. So when we read, you are my son, we know we are being pointed to Jesus. He was the anointed one. The only begotten of the Father. And the Lord gives to the Son the nations and the whole earth as his possessions. You talk about hope. Now this is not hopeful for those who who remain in their sin, who remain in their wickedness. But for those who come to faith, those who come to Christ. Listen to what what Revelation 11.15 says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of this world. What's going on in this world? It's going to a time when all of that's going to give way to the kingdom of Christ. Why rage against the one who has been given all things? including all kingdoms, Jesus' coming kingdom will be the last and final kingdom that, this, this, that the earth sees. His rule will be replete. His kingdom and His kingship will have no end. Justice will shine. Love will rule. Beauty will abound. Christ will be exalted. And there will be no end to that. The one who came as a lamb and as a servant the first time will come again as a king and a judge and a Lord full of power, full of majesty. Please hear this. Our hope is not in a kingdom of this earth, but in a kingdom that Christ will establish when He comes again. I think Americans, especially Christian Americans, forget that. Our hope is not in America. It's not in Israel. It's not in any earthly kingdom. It's in the kingdom that Jesus is going to come and build. And listen, we don't build that kingdom. He comes and He'll establish that kingdom when He comes again. There may be nations and kingdoms that reflect some of that coming kingdom. And we see that in America and we're grateful for that. And we should celebrate that and try to protect that. I'm not saying that. But but that kingdom, Christ's kingdom, has not come yet. Our actions will not bring the kingdom of God. Only Christ's actions will bring His kingdom. What we are called to do is not about establishing a kingdom. It's about faithfulness to what Christ has called us to do. To go and make disciples. Jesus said in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I, might not, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Until he comes, the church is to be an expression of that coming kingdom. It's not the coming kingdom, it's to be an expression of that coming kingdom. When someone looks at the church, when someone sees the church, when they observe what's going on in how we conduct ourselves, when they see our relationships, they see how we relate to each other, how we talk to each other, how we talk about each other. When they look at the church, they should see a people who are trying to live under the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an expression of the coming kingdom. They should see the values of Christ. They should see the character of Christ on display among His people. They should experience the grace and mercy of God through the people of God. They should experience this. The church is not the kingdom. It is a preface to the kingdom that is coming. And while we as the church display the rule of Christ imperfectly, it's not a perfect expression of that coming kingdom. When Christ comes again and he establishes his kingdom, it will be whole and it will be complete and it will be true and it will be perfect. That's our hope. And of his reign, there will be no end at that time. Don't we want that? Aren't you hungry for that? We look around and we feel the way of the nations and the people raging. And we say, Lord, how long? How long? Well, what we do know is the Lord tarries because today is the day of salvation. So that some might be saved. He he tarries that others might not come to know life and be delivered. With Christ as the hope, how should people respond? Four, Psalm 2 exhorts all people to run to Christ. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I like that, 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 that phrase right there. You know, that, that's worthy of being printed out and put on your refrigerator or wherever you put those kinds of things. That's a great, that's a great prayer. Sir, Lord, help me to serve you with fear, to rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The psalmist started with the questions of why he now turns to exhort the kings, and by implications their people, he exhorts them to be wise. Considering who God is, considering who the anointed one is, Jesus, And what has been given to Jesus, the only true course is to trust in Jesus. Be wise, O kings. Stop raging against the very one that you should be worshiping and following. It is wisdom that understands this. There is God's way and then there is the wrong way. And wisdom recognizes that. The only wise course is to run to Christ, the Anointed One, to trust in Him, to cast your lot in with Christ. Everything else is foolishness, every other way is foolishness. To be wise, to heed the warnings, means to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice in trembling, to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, revere the Lord, hallow the Lord and obey Him. And stop casting off his word and his will. It seems so few people actually fear God. And that's probably true for for many Christians. Very few people are afraid of God. If they believe in him at all, he is benign. He's this old softy who is a pushover for well-intentioned people. The psalmist says, serve with fear, rejoice in trembling, lest the Lord's anger is directed at you and you perish. Fear, trembling, yet serving and rejoicing, they go together. Fear is such an important part, and somehow or another we miss that. I don't know if you know who John Bevere is. He's, he's someone, I, I've read a number of his books. I don't know that I'd recommend him in all situations, but he, he does one of his is on fear of the Lord, and I've appreciated that. I heard him tell about his encounter with the disgraced leader of PTL, Jim Baker. For some of you, This is back in the 80s. Uh, Jim Baker was a televangelist. He had money and popularity and millions and millions and tens of millions of people uh, watched this, this show and gave money to this show. It was, just, it was huge before televangelists became big like they are today. Not only did Jim Baker commit various scandalous and immoral sins, he committed adultery, he stole, he did a number of these things, he also broke the law. He was sentenced to prison for 45 years for mail fraud, for wire fraud, and for conspiracy, and that was ultimately reduced. He only, I think, only ended up serving about six or seven years. While he was in prison, he read one of John Bevere's books, and Jim Baker contacted John Bevere and asked him to visit him in the prison. And in this conversation that, that John Bevere had with Jim Baker, John asked him, when in the middle of all this sin did, did you lose love for Jesus? And this was his surprising response. He said that he never stopped Loving Jesus in the middle of the sin, in the middle of the deception, in the middle of the crime, he said, "I always love Jesus. I never fear God." Brother and sister, do you rightly fear God? This isn't an either, either or; it's a both and. Yes, God is loving, but He is also to be feared. We rejoice and tremble. We serve with fear. Friend, do you understand that to be wise and to heed the warning of Psalm 2, you must rightly fear God. Fear Him for who He is as one who exists in unapproachable light and impurity, and in power. Fear Him for what He can do. He can destroy. He can unleash fury and anger. he will he has promised that for all those who remain in sin all the wicked and ungodly maybe it'd be a good thing just to pray and focus on that this week father grow in me a fear of the lord let me rightly fear you that i may serve you in fear and rejoice with trembling let me end with this we come to the to this last phrase this wonderful promise at the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Those who aren't raging. Those who aren't going along with the rage. Those who actually turn and run to Christ. Who take refuge in Christ. Blessed, happy, fortunate. This describes a good a good." A good thing in life. It describes the life and the soul of one who knows the favor and delight of the Lord. Do you know that this morning? For all who take refuge in Christ, we are blessed. To all who run to Christ, who turn to Christ, who trust in Christ, we are blessed. That's taking refuge in the Lord. How are we blessed? Okay, I I, I want to do something here. Because... It's it's so encouraging every Sunday morning when I pray with my brothers and sisters. They're so good to bring up the promises uh, of the Lord as we pray together. But I wanted to do a concentrated thing, okay? And I want you to I want you to hear from just the first 40 psalms all that God is and has promised us and does in our lives. This is just in the first 40 Psalms alone. We will produce fruit in season. God will lift our heads. God will give us rest. In distress, God gives relief to His people. God hears when we call on Him. Peace and strength surround our sleep. God's favor is on our lives. He hears the desires of our heart. He strengthens our heart. He stabilizes us so we are not shaken in the sin-broken world. He grants us fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. He rescues us. He is light in our darkness. He is our shield. He equips us with strength. He leads us beside still waters to restore us. He crowns our lives with grace and mercy. He brings joy in our mornings. He delivers us from our fears. We will never lack any good thing. God will act on our behalf. If you stumble or fall, He will pick you up and establish you once again. God will lift you out of the pit. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's just in the first 40 Psalms. That's not in the rest of Psalms or the rest of the Old Testament. Let's do something in the New Testament where we see the full expression of what it means to be in Christ and take refuge. We are foreknown, predestined, elected, chosen, and called. We are redeemed from slavery. We are reconciled to God. We are forgiven. There is never a possibility of condemnation. All our sins are removed. We are justified. We are adopted. We are joined to Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were resurrected with Christ. We are free from the law. We are made a child of God. We are born again. We are made new creations. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We have been made acceptable to God. We have been delivered from darkness. We have been placed in Christ's kingdom. We are God's possessions. We are God's people. We have access to God. We have been given eternal life. We have been made joint heirs with Christ. We know nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are at peace with God. as as we have been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. God loves us. God delights in us. God has favor for us. And God is for us in all things at all times. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Lord. Let that tend your soul. All that God has done That you didn't earn, that I didn't earn, that we don't merit, that we're not worthy of. It comes to us in grace through Christ. And it's ours fully. The list could go on and on. I didn't give you all. It's probably half of what I could have given you. All these things, all these promises are imparted to all true believers in all their fullness. And they are permanent and will never be withdrawn. Because that's what the new covenant in Christ's blood says. So when we read, blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see how far and how much we actually are blessed in him. Oh, that our hearts would stay fixed on the Lord. And the blessings that come only from him. Oh, that the world would see this truth. The blessed are all who take refuge in Him. When we're discipling people, we're we're teaching them what it means to, to take refuge in the Lord. And communion reminds us of all that is ours because we have taken refuge in the Lord. Communion is a fresh encounter with the grace of God. Our hearts are stirred once more as we celebrate our union with Christ in His death and therefore in His life. We rejoice because again we experience in our souls that we are blessed because we have taken refuge with Him. Let's pray.